Stay away, could you, you little scamp? Welcome to Talking Tech While Poking Smot. My name is Chad Syntax, and today I'm going to rant about fucking cookie pop-ups, because I've been browsing the internet lately, and uh, any fucking link I click on, that dumb fucking pop-up comes up. And actually, what's coming up soon for my own body of work at my actual job is I have to implement this thing. I've implemented it before at a previous job. It's really not that hard. There are plenty of vendors that you can go to and just be like, yeah, I need like to do cookies now. And then they'll be like, cool, here's a script tag. There you go. It works now. A little pop-up shows up. Ask your preferences and you can hit accept or reject or close it or whatever. The EU. <laughs> they, they did something good here. They came out with some legislation to stop shenanigans. You know, way farther down the line than it should have. It should have been like, you know, tossed in there right along when the uh, senator right there was talking about the series of tubes. Okay, we should have been worried about privacy then. Now we're just getting into it, which is obviously causing some issues because a lot of things rely on cookies. Okay. If you don't know what a cookie is, uh, you're probably on the wrong podcast, but I'll go through it really quickly, okay? Imagine every website like a store, like a big box store, like a Walmart, right? You walk in the door, and they put a name tag on you, stick it on you, and they say, like, ah, your name's Jimmy? Here's your sticker. You're Jimmy now. But then they also put a bunch of other stickers, like, on your back that you can't see. And I'm talking like the entirety of your back is filled up with stickers saying like who you are, what device you're using, what your age is, what your preferences are, and all that stuff. And also, every time they put a sticker on you, they also report back to the lab, hey, I put a sticker on Jimmy. You know, he's a big fan of bikes. And then, you know, they'll say like, oh, Jimmy, you've come back. Perhaps you should check out the bike aisle. Now, of course, you know, like a website needs to know who you are sometimes or you're free to log in, right? Or to save items in your cart. Like cookies are used to this kind of stuff. But a lot of the time, so we're seeing why we're talking about this, is that a lot of those ticket uh, stickers on your back are what's used to advertise to you, to sell to you, to track you. And then they take that data and sell it to a data broker, sell it to another data broker, sell it to another data broker. And lo and behold, you get a piece of friggin' mail with uh, tricycles advertising and it's like all right i didn't even i didn't even want to look at any tricycles how did they know it's because of all the stickers on your back buddy that's how they know so anyway uh (laughs) it's really really irritating to have to click those stupid buttons knowing that it's kind of bs at the end of the day yeah i've implemented these things all right I've I've looked through a bunch of these websites. I actually read a study, okay, because I was, like, doing a little bit of research for this because I wanted to go on a rant that was, like, you know, backed up at least a little bit, right? 
a lot of websites just like aren't compliant. And there's way too many websites for anyone to actually do an audit. Like you're talking about every single business that exists has a website. And if they don't, uh, cool. How are they, how are they operating? I'm curious, but most people, most places have a website and that website uses cookies. Okay. And every single one of those are doing their own interpretation of this stupid ass legislation, right? A lot of times they can just turn the crank on you. So you have like, and you've seen it, you've been through it. You've seen your options there, accept all or open up the settings so you can individually unclick all the 37 different cookies that they're possibly using to track you, right? Like, you know, that, that doesn't seem right to you to have to like, oh, it's so much more effort to decline the fact that I'm being tracked. You know, it's so much easier just to click accept all and just move on, read the dumb article that uh, is going to pay all my ass anyway. This is colloquially known as dark patterns and generally regarded as a dick move. It's kind of lame. It sucks. It's bad. It's just like bad UX. It totally tanks UX. It sucks. So, what's the solution to that, right? There's like basically two solutions that are out there right now that I've read about. I'm sure there's a whole bunch more, but honestly, like I just want to say that I fucking hate cookie pop-ups and you should too because a lot of them, what was that study I picked up? It was like something stupidly crazy, like 97% of the website survey like have dark patterns in them and are, wouldn't be compliant if they got an audit. Then I read another one that was like 90% that was like 10,000 websites. The first one was only like 300 websites or something like that. I'll put it in the show notes, link to the PDF. But still, it's like, holy crap. Like, I knew that websites were, like, screwing this up for the most part. But, like, I know that it was at that scale. And, like, you know, what's the EU going to do? Sue everybody? No, they can only really sue, like, Google and Facebook, like, the big tech that they're actually trying to regulate. They don't really give a crap that, like, oh, this one small startup with, like, you know, 5,000 visitors a month is tracking your cookies. Like, let's go after them. No one's really doing that, you know? So. The, obviously, the solution is to do the... <laughs> to do the Apple, right? Your little thing pops up. Ask app not to track. Boop! Done. Unfortunately, I think that would uh, literally take away all of Facebook and Google's money. And they really care about money, as most companies do, Right? Which is part of the reason why I'm sure like Google is, you know, implementing like 17 different friggin APIs to get the job done to replace, you know, cookies as it stands today. And what they're so that kind of brings me into the next thing. So like Google has their own thing called privacy sandbox that they're throwing together. Okay. It's like breaking down a like bunch of different APIs to replace whatever cookies are. But they're just starting the testing phase for like half of them like now. Right? Like, I'm looking at this timeline here. You know. Okay, maybe they're all, at this point, in the testing phase. But there is the Trust Tokens API, the, F the FLOC API, which I think is canned. Topics API, Fledge API, Attribution Reporting API, First Party Sets API, Shared Storage API, Chips API, Fenced Frames API, and the Federated Credential Management API. That seems like a lot of APIs. Back when we just had cookies before. Quote, that's it, just cookies. There's a lot going on here. I guess they 
Google really knows that there's probably much more complicated crap that goes into tracking people, and I guess than I realized before. But then the other one that I was reading about is UID, which is uh, Unified Identity, some Unified ID, yeah, Uni- UID two 2.0. Unified ID two and it was made by I was this like, Trade Desk. I don't know, but it's kind of like a coalition that like a lot uh a lot of companies and advertisers and publishers are trying to get together and like kind of like buying into this or buying there's like a bunch of other competing standards that are going in going into this. But the idea is that you'd be able to like supply your email address, it would add, it would hash it with a salt and therefore you get identified like that. Now, that's the kind of stuff that I was working with years ago at that's that that was what Segment was doing essentially. It was being like as soon as you land there, we had a, a We'd register you as an anonymous user and try our damnedest to get your email and then sync that to that anonymous user ID and Bob's your uncle. At that point, now you're kind of like a registered user in our system. Anything you do on the website, we can track to like an actual physical user and find out, okay, how far did this one person in particular make it through our funnel and gave us money? And how do we increase that funnel? Okay, it's like what growth engineering is. It's like what I do did and a very important part of that is tracking every single scroll click tap whatever that you do and tying that all back to all the other data we could possibly have on you and some other firms what they like to do is take all of that together in one big pile and sell it for money that's why people like to talk about data all the friggin' time data this data that you gotta warehouse your data you gotta transform your data Move data around. There's so much friggin' data now because people have been collecting it for the past 20 years, constantly, ruthlessly collecting data. Some companies, their entire worth is built on this, like Facebook and Google, for example. And I would be damned if any of these implementations to protect our privacy in the future won't be half-assed because of the amount of pressure on the other side of user privacy. I would not be surprised. So where do we go from here? Uh, well, they're just UID2, which is kind of like that segment thing I talked about, but more private and global to be used everywhere, I guess, is also as a single sign-on. And then there's whatever the heck Google's doing to make sure that there's a bunch of APIs that replace cookies and uh, basically allow developers to hook into them. And people will set their preferences and say, I don't want to be tracked. Then those APIs will respect that and not track you. Although I'm pretty sure that they would only really respect it if as much as they possibly can legally in the EU and then uh, just continue tracking your ass everywhere else. I would I would imagine I would imagine I would imagine they would do that. Or I would not be surprised if they did that. Not making any claims here about the future. There is one other thing, I guess, you know, this is all kind of ties into advertising, right? One thing I kind of like about using the Brave browser is that you can have them show you ads and in return you get some of their crypto, a BAT token. Now I trashed on crypto a little bit last episode, but this BAT token thing, I'm kind of on board with. Does it have to be a, you know, does it have to be a cryptocurrency at the end of the day? Uh not really. I mean, I'm sure you could do this with not blockchain technology. Maybe you can't. I don't know. I'm not a brave engineer. But 
I do like the fact that if I'm shown ads, I can say, I want to be shown all the ads. Give me all the ads, please ads. And then they give you like money for it. Uh, uh, you're cut for your data, so to speak. I'm kind of in favor of that rather than just uh, all these companies just taking it all the time for free. Free for them, sort of. They just have to run their server somehow. Am I right, guys? <clears throat> all right. Um, next topic. Next topic. I'm getting off of this. Off of it. The stack. Now, you've heard about this term, stack, probably before. And uh, it's going to be our programming term OD episode. Uh, so, traditionally, stack is a data structure. And it's always described as like a stack of plates, you know, or a stack of papers. Uh, and it's first in, last out. So... You have a big stack of papers, and you work your way down from the top. As you go down, you might pull off a piece of paper that says, add five more pieces of paper to the top of it. And then you add five more, go down to those, and keep going, you know, until the stack runs out. You know, it's basically the the model that's used in basic computing. I don't really want to talk about that, though, because it's kind of nerdy and academic and boring. What I would rather talk about is the OSI standard model or whatever it's called. It's like a it's a model that is used in computing abstractly, not like completely. It's you know, the Internet doesn't follow a very specific pattern. You know, it's kind of like the OSI OSI model for the stack is kind of broken down into seven layers, right? Most of which I don't really care about because they're even more nerdy. Not even we devs really care that much about. Like, you know, I'll just list them out just for posterity's sake. All right. So starting at layer seven, going down to layer one, there's the application layer. It's the part that, like, you know, your users are going to use. With all that, there's the presentation layer, you know. Uh, That's where, like, you know, data formatting and encryption goes. Then there's the session layer which is, uh, you know, responsible for controlling ports and sessions. Uh, Then there's the transport layer, which is, like, using protocols like TCP, UDP, I imagine HTTP. Then there's the network layer, which decides what actual path the data will take inside this fucking rat's nest that we call the Internet. Then there's the data layer, which is where we house the data, I suppose, databases and whatnot. And then there's the physical layer which is like that data actually talking to physical hard drive shit bare metal not the middle and uh that's that's like the uh, more like less academic but still academic term for stack you know if you really want to talk oh yes the presentation layer but what I like to talk about, you know, whenever I'm talking about the stack, right, you know, I'm a full stack engineer. Like, what does that mean? What does full stack engineer mean? Like, you know, it wasn't until I was doing this little bit here that I really realized, wow, the word stack is used in like a bunch of different contexts, but like I only use it in my context and anyone I work with uses it in this context too. As a full stack engineer, what I work on is the full st- application stack. So even in that top layer there, the application stack, you know. We as developers, we write code, and we just work in that work in that world, right? We're not worried too much about the network layer. That's figured out by those 
dang ISPs. We're not too worried about the protocols. That's already been set up for us. You know, we barely have to think about that kind of stuff for the most part if we're developing websites, right? The stack that we talk about is like, oh, what stack is your service? What stack is your company? What's What tech stack? What software stack are you on? And that usually comes down to saying like, all right, well, our front end is in React. Uh, we use like Redux for state management. It makes API requests with fetch uh, that, you know, those API requests are in GraphQL format. And that's uh, through HTTPS. Does, that doesn't, part doesn't really matter. But our API requests are making posts to a GraphQL endpoint. And then at that point, we receive the GraphQL query and we run it through our Node.js server here. And it's going to actually at that point connect up to the database and do operations on it or make other subsequent requests to other services and whatnot. And then the data gets retrieved and sent all the way back through. And that's the kind of stack that, you know, I work with, that developers work with, right? Like front end and back end. And then if you do all of that together, that is full stack. So yeah, that's, that's what a stack is in like three different forms. So in case you're wondering, that's, that's that. Okay, now I promised last time that I would talk about Terraform. I think I want to talk about it more at a different time. Because uh, it, is, it is a whole topic. But... You know what? Screw it. Let's talk about it. What is Terraform? Well, it's infrastructure as code. What is that? Okay. Uh, imagine I made a website, the simplest website you could think of, all right? It's got one H1 in it, and it says, hello world, and the background is red. And then I have a friend, uh, friend named Clive, Clive Palmer. He comes over and he says, Oi, that's a nice website you got there. Uh, can I have one in Yetta? And I say, sure, Clive. Let me uh, make a website for you, but this time in yellow. So I like clone the repo, and I set the background color to yellow, and I go, here you go, Clive. Here's your website. He goes, oh, thanks, mate. And then, uh, you know, at that point, I've kind of like, you know, used code to... Uh, duplicate the same thing. I didn't have to write the entire thing from scratch. I just cloned the repo, right? Now, let's flip it over to imagine you're setting up a server in AWS. And it's kind of a leap, but stick with me. In order to set up a server in AWS, like it's very simple. Let's say you just spin up a single EC2 instance. And you can do this. You can go make a free account and do all this crap if you want to. Click through. It's it's a bunch of clicks. Okay. You got to click like, you know, EC2, create new instance, blah, 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 blah. There's a bunch of settings for security groups and and how much RAM and how much CPU you want to use and networking stuff like what ports are going to be open, like all, all this kind of stuff that like I don't even remember how to do anymore because of Terraform. And like you set all that crap up after a bunch of clicks, say 30 clicks it took you to do that. And now you have your own server, then Clive... Clive Palmer comes over and says, uh, hey, can I have a server just like that? And you're like, okay, uh, let me go click through another 30 times and create a server for you. Now that's a pain in the ass. Don't you think all of those clicks could just say, I don't know, be YAML? Yes. Yes, they could be. 
They could just be configuration in a YAML file. And that's what CloudFormation is. Uh, but abstracting a layer away from there is Terraform. The thing that I, I'd like rather talk about Terraform than CloudFormation, because Terraform can be used on a bunch of different services. Okay, it could be used on AWS, it could be used on Google Cloud, it could be used on Microsoft Azure, it could be used on DigitalOcean, it could be used on friggin' PagerDuty, as far as I understand, Datadog, like pretty much any system that you'd want to do DevOps-wise, I'm sure has like some Terraform plugin that works with it. Now, I don't work on this stuff like all the time, all day, but if ever I have to spin up some infrastructure, uh, my place of work, I have to write some Terraform to do it. And it's pretty nice. It's Terraform is written in HCL, the HashiCorp language. If you're not familiar with what they are, HashiCorp is a company that makes Terraform. I think it's their most popular product, but they have a bunch of other products that I don't use and I don't feel like looking up right now. But that's what infrastructure as code is, is the fact that I could say, like, create EC2 instance. You know, it's a type of micro. It has these settings. It has these subnets, whatever the heck. And then uh, I could, Clive Palmer could be over there and be like, oh, Mike, can I have a save? I just like that. And I say, sure, buddy. I just have to go ahead and, like, you know, write this Terraform file here. Write, you know, type in Terraform plan, Terraform apply. And there you go. There's Clive Palmer's server that stood up just as easy. I didn't have to do a bunch of extra clicks and stuff. I just copy pasted a file, which is a lot easier than you know, having to click through AWS, ugh, it's, sometimes it's just a friggin' shore, man. Click through that UI, and this there's only more services. They just keep adding them. I think it, when's AWS reInvent? I think that's coming up soon. I wonder if, like, the big thing will be like, here's the services we're killing. Because <laughs> we know there's too many now. <laughs> uh, I never really pay attention too much to that stuff anyway. It's the whole world of DevOps. It fascinates me, but I don't think I could... Like The only reason I want to learn DevOpsy things is so that I feel capable to do whatever I really want to do. Like If I wanted to spin up an entire service on my own, uh, then I want to be able to do that. And if you don't have the knowledge in like any of the cloud providers, then... Yeah, you're you're pretty hard pressed to set up servers, you know, in the way that you want to, or use services that you want to. Plus, it's great practice, you know. Whatever company you end up working at, usually, usually in my experience, they're they're on one of these guys, right? And they all have similar services between them, you know, like they all have a blob storage, an S3, whatever. Hold, it's a file storage, right? And knowing all these things is really good to know because a lot of companies really hire for this kind of stuff. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot to go through a tutorial, set up a free account AWS, screw around with that kind of stuff, maybe screw around with, like, you know, SQS. You set up a queue. You could set up a stack. Like, you know, like, like earlier in the episode, we were talking about a stack. You can make a stack with SQS. Pretty sure. It's good to know these kinds of things. To be able to set up something from nuts to butts. The whole shebang. You know... I can do the front end, I can do the back end, and I can, you know, write some YAML or Terraform to set up the servers that the back end's going to actually run on. There's also other services in there you should probably be learning about and stuff. We could do another episode and spiel on that kind of stuff at some other point. You know, that sounds pretty fun, actually. 
I think that I could do an episode just talking through all the services I've used and why. But we'll save that for another time. For right now, we're going to answer this question. Web devs who are self-taught, when you got hired, did you need a certification or any kind of piece of paper? Did the employers mostly look for project-based work? Genuinely curious. Thanks. So, fairly early on in my career, I felt like employers were really taking a look at my links. Whatever I had on my resume and on my GitHub and stuff like that, uh, to actually go and take a look at things. You know, it's, it's definitely good to have links on your resume to projects you've worked on, especially if you don't have, like, experience to really back you up or any name brands to back you up. Um, and nowadays, you know, after I've been working for about 10 years, like, it doesn't, like, you know, I don't really have to do much. I just get, like, like I said last episode, I just get smacked in the face with recruiter emails left, right, and center. Even when if I have my, like, LinkedIn set to private and my thing saying, no, I'm not looking for new opportunities, they just keep coming. They just keep coming. They just keep coming and coming. Uh, so, but, you know, even if I were to turn on the spigot for real, uh, at that point, those companies don't really care too much about what I've done in the past and they don't want to look at project links or they could really give a rat's ass about like my side projects that I've put together. What they really want is to throw me through the friggin' ringer to make me go through, you know, at least two hours of technical coding challenges, at least an hour of system design, at least an hour of talking to some manager about my work ethic or problems and I have solutions I've come up with, you know, like, when was the time that you had a challenge at work? How did you overcome it? That kind of crap. Uh, you know, just technical shit, you know, system design, whiteboarding, coding there would be maybe there's an i could do an episode on that like just going through like all the interviewing experiences i've had out here in in california because it is nuts and it sucks i hate it it's a big reason why like you know talk to any of my 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 friends who are also engineers or co-workers like they'll t- probably tell you the same like good god i don't want to interview because it takes you need to like you, you need to prepare for it you need to study specifically for it. And no one wants to have to, like, take the SATs again. If You know what I'm saying? And I say this as someone who has conducted plenty of technical coding challenge interviews. Like, upwards of 50-something at this point. I've lost track. You know? And I actually do kind of enjoy giving them, conducting them. But being in the hot seat, especially when you have to do it over and over again like you're doing days of interviewing over weeks of correspondence per company and like interviewing is kind of a crapshoot to begin with no matter who you are so it's all a numbers game you can't just be interviewing with like okay i'm just going to interview google and study really hard for google all right you can't just do that shit i mean maybe you can maybe you're one of those types of people that just slams their head against that rock sure but for us normal folks who want to, like, get a job more than they care about getting into some Google club, you know, you got to interview with, a, like, eight or nine of these companies at the same time. So you might be scheduling, like, two on-sites, three on-sites on the same week. Each on-site is the entire day of, you know, you show up at the office at 10 a.m., you talk to some, you know, recruiter 
person. Then they shuffle you onto the meeting room where you go through a coding challenge, another coding challenge, have lunch, have another coding challenge, design, you know, meetings with like the hiring, the hiring manager and whiteboarding. And then they send you on your way. And in like times that by nine, it's like, and that's not even talking about the earlier stages that they sometimes make you go through, man. Ugh. All right. I'm getting off of this. Otherwise I'll keep going. Um, what was I even talking about for Christ's sake? Uh, too much Lechuga del Diablo. Uh, oh, I was answering this question. That's right. Uh, okay. Nowadays, it's technical interviews. People don't look at the links. That are, they don't care about my side projects, the dumb things that I make. Uh, go to tonguebutthole.com for a nice Elden Ring generator, by the way. Um, yeah, they don't care. It's about technical interviewing. That's all they care about. Um, there was a point in my career that I was interviewing at this one company uh, and I had, it was a competitor to the company where Curly was at and it was the exact experience they were looking for. Like point by point, the like recommended or preferred qualifications and like, and everything. Like they were look. I was the engineer they were looking for. And the recruiter was like, wow, you're perfect for this role. Only red flag I see is that you don't have a, a degree. Never heard from him again. Don't care, though. I mean, I made more money elsewhere, but there are some companies out there that don't care about that, I suppose. And if you don't have the degree, then they they just like ghost you. They take, tell you to take a hike. That I don't get. Doesn't make no sense to me. But yeah, if you're earlier on in your career, then you need to be able to, whether you're self-taught or not, I mean, I've... I've interviewed people that have degrees like straight out of college and it's just like, all right, so uh think I could give you any tasks in uh JavaScript and they're just like, uh, uh I did I only did Python <laughs> and uh I don't even know what Django is. And it's it's like, bro, like you gotta give me something. You gotta show me that you've done something outside of just like did book learned in the classroom. All right. So, anyway, like, having links is good. Project links good early on. And that's it. Uh, went on a few rants there. Uh, I sidetracked a bit. I'm sure you liked it, though. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Am I right? Uh, this has been Chad Syntax, a.k.a. the only man at the safari higher than the giraffe balls. I'm signing off. Look at you. You made it through the whole thing. Congratulations. That's awesome. If you feel like feeding me material, go ahead and email me at query at ttpspodcast.com. If you want to be a guest on the show and discuss software engineering in all of its forms, uh, contact me at guest at ttpspodcast.com. If you happen to want to sponsor the show or just give me money for no reason, that's business at ttpspodcast.com. And then just ttpspodcast.com. Go there and see episodes and look at the website I made for it. 
yeah. The, all those emails go to me. Uh, it's a one-man show over here. Uh, it's all an illusion. But I like the folders that the different emails make. So 